0: are able to bring you these weekly podcasts through the financial support of our members and friends. If you are helping to sustain the ongoing work of our church with your regular donations, thank you. If you would like to make a one-time or recurring donation, visit the donate page on our website, ucfh.org, or text 833-610-0867. Thank you for helping to share worship and messages of hope with a wider community during these unprecedented times.
1: Welcome to the United Church of Hinesburg podcast for the fifth Sunday after Pentecost, Proper 9, 2020. We are a community-centered church in rural Vermont, celebrating together virtually during the 2020 COVID-19 pandemic. As an open and affirming church with ties to the American Baptist, United Methodist, and United Church of Christ denominations, we're glad you're here. I'm Reverend Jared Hamilton, the pastor of UCH. Sammy Anxman has provided music for this episode, including Florence B. Price's Adoration. Special thanks go to Mary Eddie Stewart for reading today's gospel lesson, which comes from Matthew chapter 11, verses 16 through 19, and verses 25 through 30. There will be a homily and service of morning prayer. Let's get started.
0: Today's Gospel lesson comes from Matthew, chapter 11, verses 16 through 19, and 25 to 30. In this lesson, Jesus addresses a crowd that has gathered to hear him speak about the arrest of John the Baptist. Jesus continued speaking to the crowd, saying, But to what will I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We wailed, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. At that time, Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light.
1: Today's Gospel passage is a fascinating one that has something to do with criticism and confidence, doubt and conviction. A little background helps us understand what's happening here. If you remember, there is a character in the Gospels called John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. He was a cousin of Jesus, and at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, John is living a vocal and ascetic life in the wilderness near the Jordan River. In matthew uh, in Matthew's third chapter, John is described wearing clothing of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. His diet consisted of locust and wild honey. Now, modern analogies are awkward for a person like John. still, we might imagine him as a vegan who actively campaigns for animal rights or an off-the-grid environmentalist who chains himself to bulldozers. John was thoroughly committed to his cause, which had something to do with a return to God through corporate repentance of sins, ritual washing, and pious living. People from the regions came to John in the wilderness to hear his message and be baptized. The image we get from our Gospels is that John was not a very subtle character. He was highly critical of religious and political leaders, calling them names and pointing out areas of corruption. He is deeply concerned for the impoverished and the marginalized in Israel because they suffer most under bad leadership. But John is not all doom and gloom. He imagines and proclaims a coming leader that will be just and compassionate a leader that will shepherd the people of Israel and lift up the letdowns. Calling leaders names, pointing out their corruption, and advocating for a different administration, to an ever-growing group of followers got John in hot water. By chapter 11 in our Gospel of Matthew, John is in prison. At the beginning of our chapter, Jesus sends out his closest disciples to extend the reach of his own ministry. They go about Judea and Galilee, healing the ill, helping the troubled, and proclaiming an alternative way of life that stressed compassion, an end of oppression, and a closeness with God. While in prison, John hears about the works of Jesus, specifically that the movement is growing so he sends some friends to find out more. In verse 2, they approach Jesus asking, Hey, are you the Messiah, the one who John prophesied about, the one to come, or are we to wait for another? Jesus answers, Tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them and blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. The answer from Jesus is direct and tangible. Actual people are being transformed in physical, social, and spiritual ways because of Jesus and his followers. Change is really happening. This is the message that John's friends take back to him. Now, as they leave, Jesus turns and addresses a gathering crowd regarding John's message and affirms a connection to his imprisoned cousin. After offering a commendation that feels a little like a preemptive eulogy, Jesus tells a strange little parable about children in the marketplace. This generation is like children who sit in the marketplace. They call out to one another, saying, we played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a funeral song for you, but you did not mourn. The parable imagines children musicians gathered in a marketplace playing songs for one another. We might think of a bustling city center where street performers play for crowds. Sometimes we've stopped and listened, even throwing a few dollars in the till, while other times we've walked past, off to the next errand. But the street musicians in Jesus' parable are doing something a little different. The joyful music they played was for a wedding, the sad, melancholy music they sang was for a funeral. Weddings and funerals are taking place in the streets but no one is stopping. These reverent markers of life and death, joy and sorrow, go unnoticed or unwanted by the crowds. You see, Jesus continues, and I am paraphrasing a little here, John lived a godly, Spartan, self-disciplined lifestyle and called others to do the same, and people called him a demon. I settled into our culture, eating and drinking, and folks say, look, a glutton and a drunkard who keeps bad company. But the wisdom in all of this will be proved right by our actions. Jesus understands his mission and John's as one and the same, even though their styles were very different. John is the bug-eating wilderness prophet. Well, Jesus does much of his work over grand meals with shady company. John wears scratchy shirts on purpose, while Jesus wears expensive perfume. John addresses his audience as a brood of vipers, while Jesus opens his most famous speech in the Gospel of Matthew with a blessing. And while the two are wildly different in style, the reception is the same. Rejection. John is too strict, too pious, and too demanding. Jesus is too inclusive, too compassionate, too worldly. Whatever John and Jesus are, they are too much. Today's passage is the first time that Jesus addresses mounting criticism in the gospel, and it's helpful for us to see the way he handles it. First, he acknowledges that there will always be critics. This hasn't changed, obviously, over... Even after 2,000 years, much of our media is built on criticism. One of the few remaining things I miss about living in Boston is sports talk radio and how the host could still find ways to pick apart the Red Sox even if they had just won a game by 10 runs, or they could spend two hours criticizing the New England Patriots' play calling even after a Super Bowl win. It was Entertaining to listen to in a silly, obnoxious sort of way. You know, likewise, politicians in this country can actually do their jobs really well and still face rabid criticism from about 50% of their constituents. Alluding to those that work, that walk by um, as the wedding march or funeral dirge is performed, Jesus also points out the source of criticism as being complex. The music wasn't bad, people were preoccupied or simply not interested. You know, I know that I am most critical of others after I've had a rough day. In those moments, my words or actions are really spreading around the misery and not about being analytical. I've also noticed that I become overly critical when I've binged on too many news stories in the day. Last year, the comedian Patton Oswalt described how a family member was experiencing Fox News poisoning. When the family member had the news channel on all day in the background, steeping in awful stories of human nature, nonstop criticism, and vitriolic tribal language. He was a jerk that evening when they would have dinner together. Conversely, Oswald could tell when the television had not been on that day because his family member was the person he remembered, you know, the kinder, more compassionate person. While Jesus acknowledges that there will always be critics, he doesn't blow off criticism in total. Wisdom is vindicated by her actions, he says. The actions and outcomes of his work matter. What he does and how he goes about it matter. And he is willing to make changes when his actions do not line up with his mission or his words. In a few weeks, we get an interesting passage where Jesus talks about the importance of good speech and then calls a Canaanite woman an ethnic slur. The Canaanite woman calls him on this, and in doing so Jesus changes right in front of our eyes in this text. Feedback is our friend if we can hear it and allow it to sit with us for a while without getting defensive. Sometimes once the energy of receiving criticism disperses, there can be something helpful there. There's maybe one more insight that the Swiss theologian Ulrich Luz mentions when reviewing how this passage has been read and interpreted throughout the centuries. Many have written about having similar experiences as Jesus, being unjustly criticized or rejected. But Luz was unable to find a single sermon, devotion, or a theological treatise where the writer related to this generation. For Jesus, this generation has become so calloused to life that it critiques style at the expense of content, all the while passing by truly mo- monumentous life events like the start of a family or new relationship or the death of a community member or a family member. There's a heaviness to this insight perhaps a historical blind spot in our reflections on faith. And I wonder where we would go if we pulled on this thread a little. Can we read a good news story without feeling cynical these days? Can we be inspired by the stories of people working for social justice, prison reform, or a better healthcare system if They are from a different political party, race, or ethnicity. What metaphorical and literal weddings and funerals have we missed because our criticisms of family members, friends, and neighbors broke relationship? Finally, are the criticisms we levy against churches, communities, states, and nations a thoughtful analysis spoken to make life and community better? or do they come from projecting our own inner sadness, loss, or hatred on others? The thoughtful follower of Jesus will be self-reflective enough to examine the sources of criticism when they well up and resist breaking others because of our own brokenness. We are all pandemicking together, and after several months of anxiety, altered schedules and constant change i can imagine that work life and family life can get a little strained i sincerely pray that your people are gracious with you this week and i pray that you be gracious with your people knowing that our god is always gracious and loving god bless Feel free to join me in saying the prayer of our Savior, followed by a prayer for all of God's creation. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Loving God, we pray for the earth. Commit us to simple and sustainable living. Call us to treat all your hands have touched with reverence and dignity. We pray for all nations. Remind us of our common humanity. Forgive us our saber-rattling, and cast out tyrants that harm your people and poison your land. We pray for the cities of the earth. Renew the ties of mutual regard, which form our civic life. And guide us in all work for equality, dignity, and justice through policy accountability and the market. Help us to address our racist history and enable all of us to find in each other the fulfillment of our humanity. Loving God, we pray for the church. Provide us wisdom, courage, and accountability. Help us to grow closer to you and work together for the common good of all, even now in this time of pandemic. We pray now for all those people and places on our hearts and minds. By the blessing of your Spirit, help us to live as we pray, so that the world may come to know the gift of life in Christ our Lord. Amen. Life is short, and we do not have long to gladden the hearts of those around us. So be quick to love, and do good to your neighbor, and allow God to journey with you all of your days. Go now in peace.